I'm in the prime of life, says me, far as I be knowin'. Haven't time to slack around in comfort all the year. So when we get a little time before our boat gets going, we head on down to the library and this is what we hear. Come on and look all around, there's plenty for to see. Make your own self right upon my love, the library. a collaboration between KFSK and the Petersburg Public Library. I'm Kari Peterson, and today we are going to be talking about the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, and it's um, today we're recording this on December 18th, which is actually the 50th anniversary of um, the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act passage in 1971. And um, we're going to be talking with Nicole Hollingstead, who is born and raised in Petersburg. She is a board member of the ANGSA Regional Corporation, Sea Alaska. And she's also the owner operator of ANA Solutions, a consulting firm. Welcome, Nicole. Hi, Corey. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. And how great that we can have this conversation on December 18th, the actual 50th anniversary of ANGSA. Yes. I wasn't really expecting that. And so it's kind of a nice surprise. The Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, also known as ANCSA, is so complicated. I've had lots of conversations with you about this. We will likely 
do more than one show about this because there's so much information. I wanted to start with Petersburg Indian Association and where they fit into everything. Cause I had asked you this question, when was PIA incorporated and for what purpose were, was it in preparation for ANCSA? We'll start there. And actually, Kari, if I, if I may, I would be happy to introduce myself um, as I should culturally in the Tlingit language. My English name is Nicole Hollingstead. My parents were Luella Nicholson Hollingstead and Casper Hollingstead Jr. of Petersburg. Uh, my Tlingit name is Chakla. And so what I've told you in my Clinket introduction is my Clinket name, which means Mother Eagle, that I am a member of the Raven Moiety of the Clinket Society. Clinket Society is organized into two moieties. You're either eagle or you're raven. And that was meant for balance within the society. And I am of the Tuktain Ton or Sea Pigeon Clan. And I am also the child of Tsakwedi, which is the, um, the split killer whale, and Norwegian, if you happen to catch that in the midst of all that Clinket. So thank you for letting me give a little history. Plinket communication by nature sets you in context of where you are and basically who are your people? Sometimes you get asked that um, when you're Plinket or, or Alaska Native. Well, tell me more about your people. Where are you from? What people are you from? So the introduction, you know, gives my clan um, and my moiety, which are set by my mother. Clinket is a matrilineal society. So the children are always the same moiety and clan as their mother. And I also said I was the child of, which is uh, how we acknowledge our father. So that's all wrapped up in there and tells you a lot about me yeah. in a quicker way than I might've done just now. But <laughs> it's, you know, it's fun to know the pieces and parts of, of what that introduction means. Thank so, you. To your original question about the Petersburg Indian Association, I will start by saying how excited I am that we're having this conversation because there are so many pieces to understanding uh, Alaska Native cultures, structures within the state of Alaska, how they work together, even just simply understanding what's the difference between a tribe and a corporation. Um, I'm hopeful that this conversation might help people understand some of those differences and in just a really simple conversational way, give some of those uh, meanings and definitions and help people piece that together. Yes. Starting with the Petersburg Indian Association, we do have to, as always, place it in context. So the federal government, as we all know, has a relationship with tribes in the United States, with indigenous peoples. And it is of course the treaties under which tribes ceded their land in return for certain services in perpetuity that created the backbone of the United States. Now, we also know there are 
tragic, terrible instances of forced relocations and the the trauma and the experiences that came from that. Um, but if we're simply looking to historically the backbone of those treaties and the land that was granted to the federal government, there then has been a history of policy between the federal government and tribes within the United States. So federal Indian law is sometimes, you know, referred to as the whole collective body of, of policy that impacts tribes. The federal government went through different waves of their relationship with Indian nations. And something that I'll, I'll, I think a lot of people aren't familiar with is that it's actually the United States Constitution that set up that government to government relationship with Indian nations. There's a clause in the Constitution, uh, and for anybody who's curious, it is Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3. It's called the Commerce Clause, and it allows the federal government to have the power to regulate commerce between foreign governments, the different states, and with Indian nations. So our own Constitution sets a relationship where the federal government recognizes Indian nations as sovereign governments, as nations with whom they can regulate commerce. That's something that not a lot of people realize. And that is what sets that relationship. It is not a racial relationship with the federal government. It is a political relationship. So if people have questions about preferential treatment or discrimination, these are natural questions that come up in the conversation of the relationship of tribes with the federal government. It's good to remember that it goes back to the US Constitution and a recognition that Indian nations are sovereign entities. That means they rule their own government, their own nations. They set those laws by which the residents of those nations um, live under. So <laughs> that's a lot of history, but it's relevant because um, federal Indian policy goes through these waves in the history of the United States. And coming out of the late 1800s into the turn of the century, federal Indian policy had largely focused on um, terminating Indian nation rights. Turn of the century, and especially now, we're in the 1930s. In the 1930s, President Roosevelt was facing the impact of the Great Depression and was crafting the New Deal. So it's in this environment that federal Indian policy wants to reduce federal control and increase Indian self-governance and self-determination. So in this environment of the New Deal and a federal administration that wants to promote more self-determination, the Indian Reorganization Act was passed in 1934. It then included Alaskan uh, tribe, tribes, tribal nations in 1936. And essentially what it did is it allowed tribal groupings, many of whom are formed around um, the, the communities and the lands they occupied um, and the villages that they, that they created, the Indian Reorganization Act asked them to 
formalize their tribal governance and their tribal organization so that they could be more self-determining. So imagine in the face of a nationwide depression where people are really struggling to create conditions for more prosperity and more success. Indian tribes now have the chance to do that. So that is the basis under which the Petersburg Indian Association was formed. So the indigenous peoples in this area of Ha'ani, which is Tlingit for our land, were able to file a constitution and bylaws to establish the Petersburg Indian Association. So the Petersburg Indian Association is the tribe of the region of Petersburg, Alaska. Okay. So it really didn't have anything to do with ANCSA. It's it did not. The Petersburg Indian Association preceded ANCSA by decades. And that's true of the federally recognized tribes in the state of Alaska, particularly those who were formed and recognized under the Indian Reorganization Act. Sometimes people shorthand that to the IRA tribe. Oh, Petersburg's an IRA tribe, which is true. Um, and people in Southeast Alaska often hear different tribal organizations, but they're not quite sure what the name means, what they're hearing. You've got the Huna Indian Association, um, uh, Rango Cooperative Association. You've got the Organized Village of Cake, Petersburg Indian Association. These are the tribes of Southeast Alaska that are recognized by the federal government, have a government to government relationship with the federal government and are considered the sovereign authorities in this region. Okay. So that's why federal funding flows to those tribes. That is actually part of hundreds of treaty agreements that go back to the services that the federal government has pledged in perpetuity forever to provide to tribes in the United States. Okay, thank you for that explanation. And I just have to throw this fun question in here, which you would you like to tell us who wrote the bylaws for the Petersburg Indian Association? I, that is such a sweet question. Um, my grandmother, Amy Yachyedi Hollingstead, was one of the original founders of the Petersburg Indian Association, and she uh, assisted greatly writing the Constitution and the bylaws of the Petersburg Indian Association. So there's a, 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 of course, a close relationship because it's my tribe, but there's a family history as there is with everybody who resides in Petersburg, who is a member of the Petersburg Indian Association. Um, the, the family histories go back and um, mine is no exception. And Amy was such an influential figure in my life um, that it's, it's nice to know that there's that close connection with the Petersburg Indian Association. Yeah, thank you for that. If you are just joining us, this is Homegrown Conversations, a collaboration between KFSK and the Petersburg Public Library. I'm Kari Peterson, and today I'm talking with Nicole Hollingstead, about 50 years of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. Nicole was born and raised in Petersburg. She is on the board of directors 
for the regional ANCSA Corporation, Sea Alaska. And she is also the owner-operator of a consulting firm, ANA Solutions. We'll now return to our conversation with Nicole. Can you please give us an overview of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act? What is it and why did it happen? And so this passed in on December 18th, 1971. It was signed into law by the President of the United States. Yes, that's right. And those two questions are pretty big questions. So we'll try to break them down into little digestible chunks. Um, what is ANCSA? So, of course, that's the acronym that stands for the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. And again, remembering that federal Indian policy goes through different waves of how the federal government relates to Indian nations. Well, in the 1950s, 1960s, you've got the administrations of uh, President Johnson and President Nixon at a time when there were really powerful civil rights movements, including those of American Indians. The American Indian Movement, or AIM, um, was an incredibly powerful and effective uprising uh, and the collaboration of people coming together for American Indigenous uh, rights. So in that environment, President Nixon established a new direction of federal policy, again, leaning towards self-determination. So it is the 1960s and the land rights of Alaska Native peoples had never really been formally established with the federal government. So you have, of course, these indigenous populations who have been living for ten thousands of years. Scientific evidence shows 10,000 years and more that uh, tribes have been um, existing and occupying in Southeast Alaska in particular. So in the 1960s, Alaska natives wanted to address land rights with the federal government. In 1966, the Alaska Federation of Natives was formed specifically to try to work through native land rights with the government. And then as we all know, oil was discovered on the North Slope in the late 1960s. So that added some urgency to want to settle native land claims in Alaska. And through a lot of effort, uh, and, and I'd love to talk a little bit more about what that local effort looked like. Um, in December 18, 1971, the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act was passed to establish and extinguish Alaska Native land claims in the state of Alaska. Yeah. And the main purpose truly was so that the Trans-Alaska Pipeline could be built and oil could be brought from the North Slope down through the state of Alaska to the ports um, in Valdez, for example. Yeah. For the purposes of this conversation, that was a long explanation. I'll give a little short explanation too that, that um, might help connect the dots for people. ANCSA or the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act really became urgent in the late 1960s because oil was discovered on the North Slope and the state wanted to be able to build the pipeline that ran this, you know, through the state of Alaska. And there was an urgent need to settle 
Alaska Native land claims. And this piece of legislation is what achieved that. So Congress worked very closely with Alaska Native tribes and associations and representatives uh, to create this legislation to settle land claims and allow the pipeline to be built. Okay. What was going on locally at the time with that? You had said that earlier about... Yeah. So um, when the Alaska Federation of Natives, AFN, was formed and there was building awareness that there needed to be a land claim settlement, oh my gosh, there are so many families who have histories and memories of grandparents, aunties and uncles who literally would go door to door with coffee cans and collect dimes and, and the nickels in their handkerchiefs to try to raise money to send representatives to Washington for this really important land claim. There was so much interest and we knew that something really exciting was going to happen, something that would really have a strong impact on the natives of Alaska. And there was so much grassroots activity to make sure that our needs and our rights were represented uh, in Congress. And so, so many, so many Alaska natives traveled to Washington, DC. And I've heard stories of people wanting to make sure that they were dressed in the proper Western attire. So they bought their suits and their ties and even brought along briefcases so that they would be taken seriously. Um, but inside the briefcases was dry fish and pilot bread and it was essentially lunch, but it was important to represent and to try to be successful and be taken seriously by uh, all of those federal people out in Washington. Nice. So. As an Alaska Native woman, can you tell me how you feel about the 1971 ANCSA legislation and how it's impacted Alaska Native communities since then? So the result of ANCSA, which is important for people to know, is that the, the tribal land in Alaska was actually assigned to the ownership of corporations. There were 12 regional corporations that were formed through ANCSA, and they became the fee simple title owners of native land in the state of Alaska. So these corporations are state chartered in the state, they're private, owned by their native shareholders, and they are for-profit entities that hold title to the land in Alaska. So this is interesting about ANCSA. What it means is that there are no reservations that were formed through ANCSA. There's one reservation um, in the state of Alaska in Metlakatla. There is a second very small reservation. It's one acre of land that's owned by the Craig Tribal Association. And they should be congratulated for creating that Indian land within the state of Alaska. It's their sovereign one acre in the community of Craig. So ANCSA created the corporations that took title to the land and Alaska natives who could claim a geographic connection to that region were allowed to enroll as shareholders and they were given 100 shares of stock in those regional corporations. That's how the corporations were formed and that's how shareholders in that corporation came to be. Okay. So not only were there 12 regional corporations, there were over 200 village corporations that were formed 
and a handful of urban corporations. Urban were just uh, communities that were slightly larger in size and had a more urban um, designation to them. You know, we're Sitka. So, yeah. So there are hundreds of corporations in the state of Alaska that own the title to land in the state of Alaska. The tribes do not own the land in Alaska. And people don't always realize that. So there's this sort of unique situation and arrangement in Alaska where the corporations work very closely with the tribes. The tribes are still sovereign. They receive federal funds. They deliver services and programs that are really important to Alaska natives. But it's the corporations that own the land and manage that natural resource. So, of course, they have to work closely together for the benefit of their tribal members and of shareholders. Tribes and corporations also work really closely with health consortia in the state of Alaska. We're familiar with search in Southeast Alaska and ANMC uh, up here in Anchorage. So all together, these consortia, tribes and corporations work to deliver those programs and services and benefits that are so important for the success of Alaska Natives. Okay. So that's the that's the practical impact of what Inksa meant. Um, and so I hope that is helping to sort of connect the dots with people about, okay, so I know there's tribes in Alaska, and now I, you know, I understand there are corporations starting to get a better feel for how they work together because the tribes provide so many services, programs, um, and, and benefits, and the corporations are for-profit entities that were set up to manage the natural resource as an asset and return distributions to their shareholders. So together they work to improve opportunities and, um, and provide the means for thriving populations and successful communities. So just, just for an example, I understand that Petersburg Indian Association was created as a sovereign government to interact with the federal government on behalf yes, exactly. of Alaska natives in our community here. And right. they did not receive land under ANCSA, but we're going to return to that in a separate episode. And yes. um, but maybe you could give me an example, like say an urban corporation like Juno and what, what is the name of the sovereign entity, the tribe of Juno? What is the urban corporation of Juno that then interacts with Sea Alaska? Sorry, that's such a great question because it's really a fundamental question that so many people have about how these entities uh, are identified and how they work together. So Juno, for example, is actually the headquarters of the uh, collected tribes of the Clinket and Haida Indians of Alaska. And that's where the Central Council of the Clinket and Haida Indians of Alaska has its headquarters. That is the tribe that's based in Juneau. Um, and it encompasses those peoples from Southeast Alaska. Under ANCSA, Juneau was classified as an urban community. And so it was allowed to create an urban corporation and that's Gold Belt. People sometimes hear these different names. Clinket and Haida is the tribe 
that's headquartered in Juneau. And Goldbelt is the urban corporation representing those shareholders from Juneau. And then Sea Alaska is the regional corporation. Okay. So now at this point, hopefully people will understand how the Anxa corporations were formed, that there were already Indian tribes um, in the state of Alaska. The village corporations were formed around communities and so were urban corporations. There were five communities that were left out of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. Those five communities are Petersburg, Wrangell, Ketchikan, Haines, and Tenneke Springs. Those communities would have been designated as urban communities and would have been able to establish an urban corporation 50 years ago when ANCSA was passed. And it is an important conversation to follow up about what that might look like and how it might have impacted the community of Petersburg if we had had a corporate entity over these last 50 years, um, potentially providing benefits to those shareholders and to the community. But on a broad level, you have Alaska Natives who are designated members of tribes, and then in many cases, those tribal members also became shareholders. It's really important to know that ANCSA set a blood quantum limit for people who could enroll as shareholders. The federal government in that piece of legislation said you had to be at least one quarter Alaska Native blood quantum. So it could be a combination of different tribes. You could be Aleut or Athabascan or Clinkett, but it had to be at least one quarter. So now imagine this, there was a deadline set by when you had to be born. You had to be born by December 18th, 1971 and have one quarter blood quantum in order to qualify as a shareholder. That was the law. There are so many families who had kids in their family that were separated by that deadline. So older siblings were allowed to enroll and become shareholders younger siblings just because of the date they were born were not shareholders. And it really creates, as you can imagine, a really interesting dynamic within our communities. And it's exciting to talk about what that, you know, might have meant and to understand better what the impact of ANCSA was on uh, Alaska Natives and on our communities. So this piece of legislation was passed in 1971. It had some provisions in it that were to take effect at the end of 1991. And those were that the stock could convert and be sold to the public. And the land that was conveyed to the regional corporations and the village corporations could be subject to taxes. So in their wisdom, and through their experience, our Alaska Native leaders saw these 1991 changes coming and worked together again to have Congress amend ANCSA so that those provisions were amended so that the stock would not become publicly sold and the land uh, would not be taxed and potentially lost to ownership of the Alaska Native people. So the 1991 amendments, they're called, they were passed in the late 80s, but our ancestors, our Alaska Native leaders 
rightly anticipated what the impact of that might be. And like usual, got down to business and hammered it out and figured out what the right path forward was that was the best thing for honoring all of the efforts of our past relatives doing what was right for the present and what is best for the future. And in Clinkit, this is a value called Hashuka. And it's that relationship between past, present, and future that guides the decision-making within Alaska Native society and communities and in organizations like Anxa Corporations. Nice. Thank you for summarizing that. If you are just joining us, this is Homegrown Conversations, a collaboration between KFSK and the Petersburg Public Library. I'm Kari Peterson, and today we are talking to Nicole Hollingstead. Nicole was born and raised in Petersburg. She is on the board of directors for the regional ANCSA Corporation C Alaska, and she is the owner-operator of ANA Solutions, a consulting firm, and she is helping me navigate all the different parts of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, as this month is the 50-year anniversary of that piece of legislation. So back to our conversation. How old were you in 1971? I was, I had just turned six in on December 18th of 1971. My birthday was December 1st. So um, all three children in my family were able to enroll uh, to see Alaska. And what do you remember about, what do you remember about this date in 1971 when you were a little girl? Do you have memories of it? I sure do. And most people my age that you talk to have those really strong memories of that sort of buzz and activity and hustle and bustle. And we knew there was something in the air. And it's really common for kids to to sit under the coffee table and listen to people talk. And parents, aunties, uncles, grandparents, everybody was talking about this big thing that was happening and what we could do to make sure rights were recognized. Um, So I do remember as a little girl, the family talking about this and what it might mean. My grandmother, Amy Hollingstead, she passed away just shortly after ANCSA was passed, but I'm really glad to know that she saw that come to fruition. So many people worked so hard to try to protect Alaska Native rights, even though this legislation was very complicated and um, is still in many ways very difficult to navigate. But she did see that happen. And and, um, I was a young girl when she passed, but her activity, her fight for Native rights through the decades of the 30s into the 70s have always really inspired me to serve in roles that uphold our Alaska Native people and support our communities. Nice. Thank you for that. I remember the first time I learned about Elizabeth Pradovich and I was, I was blown away at how 
how this was going on in Alaska so many years before the civil rights movement in America and that it was a woman. And, um, and then through learning about Elizabeth Pratovich, then I began to learn about Amy Hollingstead. She was a woman (laughs) and doing these things, you know, they started doing them in the twenties and thirties and forties and fifties. And they just kept going. And there was such a movement. I think that that's, um, that's the thing is there were so many people working on it. People were unified. Absolutely. And even though, I mean, there were differences of opinion to be sure about what the right settlement would be, but the fact that, that, we were able to collectively come together and negotiate uh, and get this piece of legislation passed. And when you think about legislation, I mean, this this was passed relatively quickly, I think, in the scope of everything that was happening in the late 60s. So, yes, it is. It's it's quite an accomplishment. And people have different opinions about what ANCSA means or what the impact is and what we're still working through. But it is important to note the cooperation and collaboration that it took for Alaska Natives to work together to pass this important piece of law. Yeah, and they did. They really came together in that important time. Like, I was just studying that about how the um, the Alaska Native Federation had had been created and then, like you said, right after that, the oil in Prudhoe Bay had been discovered. And that was the motivation. It probably wouldn't have been passed if, if the other people didn't have that motivation under them. <laughs> it's really true. And that's, you know, it's a, good, it's a good point to raise that the urgency behind settling the land claims was absolutely driven by the discovery of oil on the North Slope. And so all of those forces, you know, came together. Um, at that time to make sure that the bill was passed so that oil production could ultimately proceed. And some, I think some people don't connect the fact that working together to settle the Alaska Native land claims paved the way for oil to flow through Alaska and ultimately to establish the Alaska Permanent Fund. And people don't always connect those things. But that is exactly what happened. And that, of course, benefits all Alaskans. Yes. Here we are now, 50 years later. We've got the tribes in the state of Alaska. We've got the ANCSA corporations working together. Tribes provide important programs and services, receive federal funding. The corporations own the land and manage that as an asset. And together, we're working to, you know, have positive economic benefits in our communities. The ANCSA corporations generate about $16 billion per year in the state of Alaska. So they are really strong economic drivers within the state, which is something to really be proud of as shareholders of those corporations. That's what I was thinking. They're a huge part of the Alaska economy. They have absolutely become a driving force of the Alaska economy, the corporations. And I guess I wanted to hit on that too, because you had explained that to me about how the corporations 
are not separate. The money that the corporations bring in, can you explain that about the, is it the 70, 30? Um, yes. Yeah. That's great. That you so know that. Yeah. Right. Right. So something else that many people don't know about ANGSA is that there was a natural resource sharing provision. We shorthand it by calling it 7I because that's the section of the agreement that said you need to come to some arrangement of how you're going to share the benefit of natural resources because some regions had much more resources and some had fewer. So the 7I provision of ANGSA says when you develop your natural resources, 70% of those revenues have to go into a shared pot. You get to keep 30 as your own corporation. But 70% goes into a shared pot, and then it gets distributed back out to the regional corporations based on the number of original shareholders they had. So it's a shared resource clause. And it's kind of surprising because if you talk to other shareholders of private companies, if you said, gosh, 70% of the money your corporation makes is going to get thrown into a different pot and separated out, People would really be astonished by that. You know, how do you succeed? But it really underlies that native value of when you are supportive of all, that really, you know, lays success for everybody. Um, so, yeah, the the Section 7I of ANCSA uh, means that natural resource development is shared and the money that the regional corporations get from that shared pot, they're required to send uh, portions of that out to the village corporations. So it really is a sort of all in this together shared resource situation. Yeah, that was really interesting to me. Thank you for explaining that. What do you hope to see in the next 50 years? for the Alaska Native Corporations formed under ANCSA? That's another really big question. And I, I don't know that it's so much about me or what you know I would expect or hope to see, but I will say that there are so many elements of ANCSA that we're still dealing with today. Corporations are facing the fact that the blood quantum issue is coming up. Their original shareholders, are aging and about half of the regional corporations have opened their enrollment to descendants of those original shareholders. So same, you know, basic requirements. Um, some have addressed the blood quantum issue. Some are looking at whether that blood quantum amount should be reduced or eliminated altogether. But corporations are now looking at what is the what will the result be 50 years from now, 100 years from now, using that value of ha shuka as we look forward knowing that our future generations have said they want to be connected to their identity and their culture through their corporations. So those are some questions that the corporations are asking themselves as they look to the future how to continue managing those resources and particularly for those five Alaska Native communities without land, we sometimes call them the landless, those landless communities. We continue to fight for the amendment to ANCSA that would bring them back in to the benefit that all of the other communities in Alaska 
were allowed to receive under ANCSA. There are a lot of stories, myths sometimes, explanations for why these five communities were left out. These are communities in Southeast Alaska. Southeast is a timber rich region. Reasons have speculated from existing timber contracts where contractors didn't want local competition for the timber to people simply stepping out of the room for a cigarette break when things were happening so quickly and negotiations were being settled so rapidly. There have been studies that have shown these five communities met all of the requirements of an urban corporation uh, and so likely should have been included. We continue to fight for those landless communities to receive the land that all of the other Inks of corporations did and enjoy that benefit in their communities. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing your, your knowledge on this topic. It is so, um, there's so many moving pieces to it. I really enjoy talking to you about this subject. Thank you. You're so welcome. And I'll say gunashchish. Thank you for having the conversation. ANCSA changed the landscape, literally, for Alaska Natives. And as we look to the future to see, you know, what this means for our next generations, um, it's nice to just take this moment and recognize the effort it took to get ANCSA passed and to continue working to keep Alaska healthy and thriving. Yes. Thank you to Nicole Hollingstead for taking the time to talk to us about Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act of 1971. Thank you for joining us. This has been Homegrown Conversations, a collaboration between KFSK and the Petersburg Public Library. Today's show will be archived as a podcast at psglib.org. 